before we uh, get to the sermon, let's read the passage together. So if you'll follow along, and our passage today will be Amos chapter 4, excuse me, Amos chapter 3 and Amos chapter 4. Amos chapter 3. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? For the Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your strongholds shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and a part of a bed. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for her transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house and the houses of ivory shall perish and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. And you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and shall be cast into Harmon, declares the Lord. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of of thanksgiving of that which is leavened, and proclaim freewill offerings. Publish them. For so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord God. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places. 
yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain, the other, the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts destroyed. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses. I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were a brand plucked out of the burning. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to a man what is his thoughts, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. This is the reading of God's word. And we say, thanks be to God. God, we've heard your word. Now give us clarity of thought as we seek to understand what it meant to your people so long ago and what it means for us today. Help us to that end. And for the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, we all pray. Amen. So to recap a little bit of where we are in the Amos series thus far, and I know this was a long passage, and I just uh, I, I encourage you as we get into an Old Testament book, there's a greater distance uh, into Old Testament books, so it's going to take a lot of work for us to understand. So, uh, so bear, bear with me this morning. Uh, I'll try not to go too fast in my speech, because Janet says when I do that, I mix up cities, and, and then it gets all confusing. Um, but in invite you to stay with me and track with us. Let me recap where we have been um, in Amos. We saw in the chapter one and chapter two was what we called the setup. Um, The Lord God through Amos was giving a setup to the people of Israel. He had a message for Israel and it followed that prophetic formula, thus says the Lord. And then there was a ruling and then the city was, or the country, the nation was named. And then he gave the reason because, and then he listed their various sins. And he said, so I will send a fire, right? You remember this. And and you kind of remember from the map, he started, this was a message to Israel, but he started way up in uh, Syria and Damascus and then in the Northeast. And then he came out to the Southwest um, with Ashdod and Ashkelon and Gaza, the, Phil- the Philistia. And then he went over in the desert in the southeast and to Edom. And then he addressed Ammon and then Moab. And then he gets, uh, oh, I forgot Tyre and Sidon up there. So he went there, 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 there. You can see the, the order that he went in. And Israel, this is kind of an interesting tactic. Israel's like, yes, the Lord is going to judge all of our neighbors and rivals and enemies that are all around us. And then he has a longer word for them. Except, uh, uh, interestingly, 
it didn't have it didn't have a so I will for Israel at the end of chapter two. That's because the rest of Amos is the so I will. And so this was just the setup to get right to the heart of Israel and their sins. And the rest of the book is an explanation of that. So uh, let me give you, uh, here's, here's the outline of the rest of Amos. This will let you know where we're going for the rest of this month. From now until October 31st, we're going to be covering the rest of Amos. And here is, if I could summarize Amos for you, the setup is to chapters 1 and 2, which we just saw last week. And then there are three sermons or three speeches, and you could put this into your handout. There are two woes and five visions. Okay, so, and three plus two equals five, so there's your, there's your memory device. The three sermons all have this grammatical clue at the beginning. Chapter three, verse one, chapter four, verse one, and chapter five, verse one, have the hear this word. The two woes have the key word woe in there. And then the five visions are the pictures. And this is where he kind of goes from speeches to more visual, like picture imagery. So this is where we are in the rest of Amos. Today, we're going to look at the first two sermons, the first two sermons of those first three sermons. And we're calling this Hear and Return. Just as a reminder from several weeks ago, we saw that Amos, along with other Old Testament prophets, were covenant lawyers. God had made a covenant with his people Israel that had blessings for obedience, what he would do and what their obligations were. And if they disobeyed and were disobedient and violated the covenant, then there would be curses that would come. The prophets are merely the lawyers that are coming and presenting their case. So Amos is that prophet. So think of these first two sermons as kind of like opening statements for a trial. Okay? So they're sermons, but we're also going to call them opening statements if you want to go with kind of the legal theme. So let's jump in. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk us through it. I'll explain things as we go and kind of give you a flow of thought throughout chapter three and four. And then we're going to focus on the message at the end. What's the main point and what it means for us? So are you with me? Here we go. First sermon, the first sermon of warning in chapter three, verses one through 15. Here's the first thing you need to know. He begins with a reminder of Israel's special covenant privileges. Hear this word. There's your grammatical hint that this is a beginning of a speech that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel. Remember, he'd addressed all of the other nations and now he's targeting Israel, circling in onto his target. But this message isn't just for, is, for just Israel, the northern kingdom. It also extends to all of Israel, including Judah, because he adds, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. And he says this, You only have I known of all the families on the earth. This harkens back to what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, when 
the Lord God speaking through Moses to all of the people of Israel as they're about ready to enter into the land. He says these words, Deuteronomy chapter seven, verses six and eight. He says, for you are a holy, a people holy to the Lord, your God. The Lord, your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. Why did the Lord choose Israel as a special treasured possession? Because they were smarter than the other nations. They were a little more civilized than the other nations. They were a little more cultured than the other nations. Uh, They were a little more level-headed. They were more talented. Is that why? No. It is not why. Notice he says in verse 7, it is not because you are more in number than the other people that the Lord set his, uh, than other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all the peoples of, uh, of all peoples. So then why was it? But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you up with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Okay? They're a treasured possession. The Lord didn't choose them because they were a treasured possession. They were a treasured possession because the Lord had chose them and he had no, uh, there was no basis in them for doing so. And because he's chosen them, they now have covenant, special covenant privileges and special covenant responsibilities. So notice what he says at the end of verse two. You only of all the people on the families of the earth I've known, therefore, I will punish you for your iniquities. It is because of God's faithfulness to the covenant that he must punish them, not despite of it, in spite of it. So he begins with this special reminder of their covenant privileges. Here's the second thing to notice. The rhetorical questions. That's what you could put there. The rhetorical questions. Rhetorical questions. And here, keeping in mind that this is the covenant lawyers, he's presenting his case. And here, what you need to see in these questions is he's, he's basically proving, I have cause. I have cause. So we saw the questions, do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? So picture two people out walking in the, you know, the northern uh, hills of, of Israel, and they're just walking next together, right? Together. And he's like, they had to agree to do that. Otherwise, it's a little weird. Have you ever walked in like the mall and like walked shoulder to shoulder with a total stranger, right? And because uh, one of you would speed up or one of you would slow down or you would kind of go apart. Like if two people are walking together, you're observing the result. Well, the cause is they had to have agreed. They know each other. You get the idea of the cause. He's pointing out a result and he's saying um, this has a cause. And so these are rhetorical questions. Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey, for instance? Right? He's looking, a lion's roaring. Oh, he must have caught his prey. That's what you need to think of when you read these verses from uh, three, uh, 3 on through, through 5. Um, he's uh, 3 through 6. He's, present, he's, he's asking these questions and saying, I have cause. The result of the judgment that's coming on you has a cause and it's your transgressions. So the rhetorical questions, number three, the third thing you need to notice in this first sermon, the Lord has cause his attorney Amos then has an obligation to represent his client Yahweh's best interest. He has to disclose his case 
That's the point of verses 7 and 8. For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. Prophets being the covenant lawyers. The lion, he used the imagery of a lion a little bit earlier here. And we saw in chapter 1, there was a reference to the, the Lord. Chapter 1, verse 2, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. Here, he's saying, the lion has roared. He has prey. The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? So Amos says, kind of inserts this in here. This is the little disclaimer as Amos. I know I'm just um, a fig tree farmer and, a, and a, uh, I kind of own the sheeping business down in southern Judah. But I have to say what I'm about to say because the Lord has appointed me as his counsel. He, I am his lawyer. This reminds me of when Jeremiah was saying, like, you know, if I don't mention the Lord God um, in Jeremiah chapter 20, he goes, but there was in my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I'm weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. Uh, Amos is saying a very similar statement here. Who can but prophesy? So Amos kind of walks him through a catechism, basically, of their guilt, and that Amos has no choice to announce it. Number four, the fourth thing we need to notice about this speech. The Lord now calls his witnesses. The Lord calls his witnesses. In verses 9 and 10, proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the, lands of e in the land of Egypt and say, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria. Okay, stop there for a moment. He is assembling as his witnesses to pagan nations. His chosen people are guilty of transgression and breaking the covenant. And as eyewitnesses to it, he's pulling in two pagan nations as almost as if to say as bad as they are, they can still tell you're really violating the covenant. Why does he pick? Uh, let me give you kind of a map here. He Ash, Ashdod is down over here in um, Philistia, Philistia in Egypt. So why does he pick these two nations as a symbol of witnesses? It, I think it's just because it's the opposite distance, almost the exact opposite distance from Israel to Assyria, which is the nation that he is going to use in about two decades time to implement the judgments that he's talking about. So he says, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria. So Samaria was the, the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel. And it was sat on a hill and there were hills all around it. And he's basically saying, come park yourselves on all of those hills and put your eyes on Samaria and see and tell me what you witness. And what does he witness? Well, he witnesses tumults, uh, chaos, um, riots oppression, unrighteousness, theft, outright just stealing, violence, hoarding wealth, and neglecting the poor. That's in verses 9 and 10. Notice in 11. Therefore, thus, uh, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses on you and your strongholds shall be Plundered. That adversary is going to be Assyria. Amos is writing in about 750 
740 BC, the northern kingdom of Israel is conquered and destroyed in 722 BC. So 15, 20, maybe 25 years. And the Lord is warning of it here. Then he gives a a proof of destruction. Okay, proof of destruction. I imagine many of you as you're reading this and going, what does verse 12 mean? As a shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear. What is going on here? Well, I, I think that the background here is from Exodus chapter 22, when God has given various laws about how Israel is to conduct themselves. These are civil laws. And he says, okay, say person A, you know, he has a donkey or a beast of burden of some kind, and he loans it for safekeeping to person B. Okay? And uh, the donkey or beast of burden just dies while in possession of person B. He said, well, how would we handle this in a, in a court of law, like civilly? Um, the Lord says, okay, so person B, all they have to do is, I swear an oath to the Lord God that that animal died of natural causes. You know, it, it, he just died. Person A, the Lord says, because he swore an oath like this, I'm going to now handle it. You have to accept the ruling. He doesn't have to make restitution. If, on the other hand, the animal gets stolen, dragged away by another animal, you know, like a lion or something, and taken away, it specifically says in Exodus 22, if the lion, if that beast gets taken away um, and you don't have anything to show for it, person B has to make restitution now. Unless, and here's the little caveat, he says, unless you are able to go and rescue a piece of the animal to identify to person A, this is your animal. I didn't do it. Somebody, another beast came and took it. And so I took a leg and I took an ear and I rescued what I could. And here, I know it's really gross, isn't it? But, but imagine that. Here's, here's proof. Here's proof that the demise of that animal actually happened. And that's legally acceptable okay have that picture in mind when you're reading verse 12 thus says the lord as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear so shall the people of israel who dwell in samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and a part of a bed you get it this is this is a little statement in here about the proof of the the destruction that's about to happen The parts of the animal were legal proof that the animal had been destroyed and didn't just disappear or wander off. Assyria will come and destroy and there will be parts of a bed, parts of furniture, things like that, uh, leaving only mutilated remnants. And that serves uh, as proof of the northern kingdom's demise. You got it? That's proof of destruction. And then lastly, he returns back to the, the issue of the witnesses of Ashdod in Egypt in verses 13 through 14, returns, uh, let's see, verse 13, hear and testify against the house of Jacob, Jacob being another synonym for Israel, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on that day I will punish Israel for his transgressions. I will punish the altars of Bethel and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. Bethel, as as well as Gilgal, were sites of northern Israel worship. Now, the Lord God had told them, given Israel some instructions about how an altar would be 
built. Before the, um, the, br- the bronze altar was made, they were, enabled to, they were able to uh, make stone altars, but it had to be an uncut stone. You can't put iron to the stone. You can't hew the stone. You can see this in, it's in Exodus chapter 20, Deuteronomy 27, and it's even in, in Joshua. You're not to have a stone. But what, what the northern kingdom of Israel did is they had several kind of cities that sat up on a hill, and they had altars there where people could come, and they can uh, you know, offer sacrifices, and they could offer sacrifices to the Lord and to the other deities that would be there. Can I show you a picture of what like an archaeological remains of what they found in like northern Israel in a couple of these places? There's one. Notice anything about it? Hewn with stone. Hewn stone. And these little peaks here, those are considered the horns of the altar. So the Lord God is saying, I'm going to come and I'm going to punish Israel for his transgressions. And then kind of figuratively say, no, I'm going to punish the altars. I'm going to break the horns. Which is kind of an interesting play on word. The horn there is also the Hebrew word for the horn. The horn meant strength. It's like I'm going to tear your, your strength down, your strongholds. I'm going to punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns shall be cut off and fall to the ground. Verse 15. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end. Winter house, summer house. This is a picture of affluence in Israel that day. They were very wealthy, very prosperous, very militarily secure because of the alliances that would have been made at that time. And so wealthy, in fact, that a lot of the, a, a lot of the aristocracy in, in Israel's day, they had multiple homes. They would have a winter home and a summer home. And so that was kind of a picture of the wealth and the affluence there. And he's saying, by the way, your, your, your regular home, your winter home, your summer home, they're both going to be destroyed. Don't think you could, could skip up to the cabin up north and, I, and I, you're going to miss the judgment. I, I'm going to get you. You can't escape to your vacation home. And the ivory and greatness pictured the opulence and that this is the Lord God of hosts. We'll get to that here in a moment. So there's your first speech. There's the first opening statement. Here's the second opening statement of the sermon. Notice chapter 4, verse 1. Hear this word. There's your grammatical hint. Here's the second one. Hear this word. And then here, we'll do, call this section here, the opening verses, the lazy loafing wives of the wealthy. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. I almost didn't want to touch this. I didn't, I didn't want to. Can I skip this, Lord? Can we just do this? Uh, so Bashan would be a region uh, east, kind of east and northeast east of Israel, kind of right on the periphery of it. And it was a, a high-level uh, plateaus, very grassy, perfect for uh, cattle grazing. And as a matter of fact, they were very well known for their cattle. I mean, think like Texas, you know. Known for cattle. Or where's a good cattle state? Te- okay, thank you. Think, think Texas. Uh, so beef. Think beef. Um, and so they had a high reputation for it. You remember this in Psalm, uh, Psalm 22. Um, 
when the psalmist is, is writing about these difficulties and he says uh, of his enemies, he says, many bulls encompass, he, encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan. This would be saying these are, uh, these are elite Angus. These are good. These are good ones. Okay. So this is not a flattering picture. That was an understatement. As a matter of fact, this is supposed to be a pretty offensive thing he's, he's saying here. The, the cows of Bashan, these are wives of nobility and wealthy merchants of, of Samaria. And this is a picture of self-indulgence, self-absorption, uh, self total lack of self-awareness. What do they do? Who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, and who say to their husbands, bring that we may drink. This is the danger of the material prosperity. I saw a video clip. I was trying to think of like, what would be kind of a contemporary example of this? You could find plenty. I saw a video clip of, uh, a, this was about three or four weeks ago, maybe now, of a political fundraising dinner. Um, and I won't say what party, and I won't tell you that it's in California wine country. But they were all dining outside on these nice tables, you know, you could tell it was really affluent. It wasn't country club. You know, like you could see country club dinner. This was like way next level. Um, and no masks, which I'm totally cool with, except they're all for them. And they're all for the orders for them. Um, and except all of the wait staff were all ethnic minorities and all of them had, uh, had masks on. And it was upwards of $29,000 a plate. $29,000 a plate. Cows of Bashan. Cows of Bashan. And so the Lord is issuing this very offensive thing. Here's, I'm categorizing some of your sins here. And so what does he say in verse 2? The Lord God has sworn by his holiness. His holiness is profane when his people are that sinfully decadent. And then he says what he's going to do to them. Verse, the rest of verse two, that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. I found this great, um, oh, there's the cows of Bashan, by the way. Those are pretty, pretty good, pretty sizable. Again, not a flattering picture. Um, but here's a, a piece of pottery um, from the, like Assyria, northern Israel era, you know, this, this era. And you, if you notice a couple of things about this pottery, I don't know why. <laughs> I mean, you guys have like Corel plates and they have nice prints on them with like, you know, vines or whatever on this. This would be the type of thing they would put on their pottery. Hey, you remember that battle where those people were conquered and taken away? Here, let's put that on our vase. So this is a vase, a, a broken fragment of a vase and it's kind of celebrating the depiction of some of their enemies. And notice this person is totally stripped naked. They are bound in shackles, you know, handcuffed. And then notice this thing that like attached to their nose. This is, this is what they would do in the ancient days to conquered peoples and kind of a way of humiliating them and shaming them and to take them back to another land in captivity. They would actually pierce through their nose and put a metal ring on it and then attach the ropes or chains to that, you know, or, or hook it in some way. Okay? 
So when the Lord says, so here's a perfect example from, you know, right from the ground, we could see this is the kind of thing that they would depict doing to, uh, to enemies. And they would put this, as strange as that is, they would put it on their, their, their pottery. The Lord says, this is going to happen to you, Israel. He doesn't name them here, but we know in history that the Assyrians are going to come. And this is what you're, we're going to do to you. I have cause. I have cause, he says. Um, part two. Here's a sarcastic invitation uh, for them to increase, and I would say even incite, incite them into their favorite religious practices. Verses four and five. He's going to incite them, and this is all sarcastic here. He's sarcastically and ironically inviting them to multiply their fake religious Practices. Verse 4, come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgressions. Bring your sacrifices every morning and your tithe every three days. Why is that significant? Because this is even greater frequency than what the Lord required for sacrifices and what the Lord required for tithes. He's saying, like, you know, so you could bring your sacrifices maybe once a week. You'd have tithes could be brought in as you would bring in a harvest. He's saying, hey, sarcasm here, remember? It's like, hey, go to Gilgal, go to Bethel, go to those places. Keep on doing what you're doing because it's not going to matter anymore. And as a matter of fact, just go at it. Do it. Go offer sacrifices every day, even though that's way more frequently than I did. And go ahead and offer your tithes every three days. You get the, the picture there. And then notice what he says here. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving, in verse 5, of that which is leavened. Again, <laughs> all of the sacrificial offerings were to be what? Unleavened, right? And he's saying, as a matter of fact, just go ahead and corrupt it. Just fill it with evil. Like the Apostle Paul says that removing of the leaven in the New Testament, that's like a picture of removing the, the evil that's from among you. He's like, go ahead, just add it. And then he says this, um, verse 5, uh, Offer a sacrifice of dev- thanksgiving of that which is leavened, and proclaim freewill offerings. Publish them, for so you love to do, O people of Israel. You love to do. They chose their style of worship. They chose a style of worship that they loved. They wouldn't think, they wouldn't even think of not inventing ways of worship that didn't suit their own preferences. The only forms of worship that were acceptable to them would be the ones that they liked. And the Lord is mocking them for it. Keep it up. Why? Because God is supposed to be the consumer of worship. He is the one who gets to dictate the preferences because that's, it's his So sarcastic worship, encouragement to false worship. Here's number three. The warning signs were there. And this is the main part we'll focus on in our uh, exposition or our application of this. The warning signs were there. There were hints and reminders of past judgments in Israel's history that they just failed to heed. There were warnings that they just failed to listen to. Okay? And that's here in verses 6 through 11 where the Lord says, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities. 
okay, now is this a good thing or a bad thing? Like clean teeth is very good, right? But teeth get dirty when you eat. When you're, if you don't eat, you don't have dirty teeth. You have clean teeth. So cleanness of teeth was a, a Hebraic figure of speech saying you, you are lacking food, which is what is made clear in the next line. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places. Did you remember there were times when I, when I would cause a drought? You wouldn't have grain. And you yet you didn't return to me. Verse 7, I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city, send no rain on another city. One field would have rain and the other field which did not rain would wither. And so you two, two or three cities would now have to converge onto another city and diminish their supply and it's just scarcity all around. The Lord did this. Notice, notice that on all of this, that every time we get in the ancient world, whenever we receive some good benefit or fruit of the ground like that, in the Bible, it's always the result of God's gracious activity, his common grace to all people. Notice as well that it's God who withholds it when it doesn't happen. God is the one who withholds the rain. God is the one who strikes with blight and mildew. In the next verses. God's the one who sends the locusts to devour. God is the one who sends the pestilence. God is the one who causes their young men to lose in battles and to be defeated. God is the one who caused them to be carried away. Notice that all throughout there. The Lord had in Israel's history, despite their military prowess and their material prosperity, The Lord was bringing hardship on them. And as a matter of fact, I think we'll put it this way. The Lord was bringing periods of hardship on them in the midst of their military security and material prosperity. Okay? Catch that. I did this. I withheld rain. You had clean teeth? I gave those to you. And that's not a good thing. That means you didn't have bread. I did that. And he did it for a reason. A very specific reason. And what was the reason? That they would return to him. Notice the refrain over and over again. Verse 6. Yet you did not return to me. Verse 8. Yet you did not return to me. Verse 9. Yet you did not return to me. Verse 10. Yet you did not return to me. Verse 11. Yet you did not return to me. This is the main thrust of his sermon. Let me give you the last part of speech two, and then we'll unpack what he's getting at here in verses six through 11. And here, part four, he says, prepare to meet your God, the warrior judge. Therefore, thus I will do to you, Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Yeah, yeah. I saw that face, Steve. Yeah. Prepare to meet your God. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, and here it is again, the God of hosts is his name. This is the Lord God, Yahweh Sabaoth. 
the commander of the army, the angelic army. So he calls them to prepare in verse 12. And then we, many commentators believe this is like a, frim, a, a hymn, fragment, a fragment, an old ancient Israeli line from a hymn. This whole, the fact that he forms the mountains and creates the winds. God is the creator. God is the revealer. And God is also the warrior judge. So what is he coming to judge them for? Their sin. We get a picture of all through this. Selfishness, materialistic, worldliness, greed, false worship, idolatrous religious practice. Mixing worship of Yahweh with the worship of other gods. And the, the sense that, that they had made it and they had accomplished it and they had really could pat themselves on the back for what had happened. But they had neglected the covenant. David Helm, uh, one commentator, said this. Simply put, in this time of blessing and affluence, God's people did not pursue God's house, but rather their own. And so the Lord is coming in judgment here. Now, a couple of things back with the verses 6 through 11. I want us to two, two lessons here at the end. Here's the first one. Beware the danger of material prosperity and humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Beware the danger of material prosperity and humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Remember, they're the covenant lawyers. The prophets are covenant lawyers. And this covenant is spelled out in Deuteronomy. And I'd like you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8 and just follow along as I read this. Because this forms kind of the backdrop of what's going on here in the northern kingdom of Israel. The whole commandment that I command you today, Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 1. You shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Your clothing did not wear out on you and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Then know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord, your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord, your God, by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord, your God is bringing it you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains of springs, flowing out of the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley and of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper, and you will eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land that he has given you. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God 
in keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and led you through the great and terrifying wilderness in its fiery serpents and scorpions, and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of a flinty rock, and who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so you shall perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. This is what's happening to Israel right here. And this is the main charge against them is that they in their affluence and prosperity just neglected the Lord. They neglected their obligation. They did not heed the danger of material wealth and did not humble themselves in the sight of the Lord. This is what I think is behind this amazing prayer in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 and 8. Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying and give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you. Notice how the assumption there. Notice the tendency there. That he knows this. This is the danger that was warned about in Deuteronomy. And this is what Israel was guilty of. So stay humble in prosperity. Old Puritan named John Flavel says this, To see a man humble under prosperity is one of the great rarities in the world. To see a man humble under prosperity is one of the greatest rarities in the world. So that's the first one. Beware the danger of material prosperity and humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Here's the second one. Pay attention to the times of hardship all around and turn them into opportunities to hear the Lord and return to him. Remember, this is the focus of verses 6 through 11. I did these things to you, cleanness of teeth, withholding rain, causing blight and mildew in the hopes. So he was he was giving times of minor afflictions, minor hardships in the hopes that it would cause them to kind of wake up a little and go, oh, we need to return to the Lord God with all of our hearts. That's what he was doing to Israel. 
So pay attention to times of hardships all around. God brings difficult times with the goal to wake us up and cause us to return to him. The Lord's criticism of Israel is that they failed to do this very thing. The Lord God would bring milder hardships on them to wake them up and to to wake them up to say, there's greater hardship that's coming in the future. For Israel, that was their destruction as that northern kingdom. The destruction by the, the Assyrians. But in the New Testament, Jesus says something very similar to Christians today. To be mindful of the hardships or difficulties or tragedies that we would see going on in the world around us. This is why I want you to read, or turn with me to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. Jesus is approached by a group of, uh, a crowd of people, and they ask him this question. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Again, we don't know the the exact historical reference here, but perhaps uh, we know Pilate had gone and murdered a bunch of Galileans uh, in northern Israel and had and it apparently had been taking place while they were engaged in their worship up north. They were offering sacrifices. And so Pilate comes in with his soldiers and, and kills them. And so they've raised, mingling their blood with the blood of the sacrifices. And so they come to Jesus and he say, um, and they said, it's embedded kind of in this question. Um, what do you think about what happened there? Was, it, was that God's judgment on them particular, in particular? Notice what Jesus says. And he answered them and he goes, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all of the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? And Jesus says, no. There's two parts to here. One, he says, no. That is, that is not because they were worse sinners at this particular time. That's why God did this. But here's the second thing. He says, no, I tell you, but, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Notice what he's saying here. Whenever you see a tragedy like that that's happening to a group of people, don't think that that's God's particular judgment on them. Jesus says no. But when you see it, you should think there's a greater judgment to come. Have I returned to the Lord? The Lord says, I poured out all of this on you, Israel, and yet you did not return to me. They offer a second one here. One is, one is a, a, a horrific man-made disaster. And then here's the second one. And Jesus just introduces this uh, without their asking. Verse 4, or those 18, 18 people on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Again, we don't have an exact historical reference, but Jesus tells us this is an accident. 18 people were killed. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all of the others who lived in Jerusalem? Jesus says, no, I tell you. However, 
But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It's a reminder to pay attention to the times of hardship and difficult things that are all around us as opportunities to hear the Lord and to return to Him. Similar thing plays out in the book of Revelation chapter 9. As the trumpets were being blown and disaster was happening all throughout the land. And then it says this, the rest of mankind who were not killed by all of the plagues, they did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot hear, see or hear or walk. They did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Saying, what, what's, in, what's a greater indication that God's judgment is deserved when he gives doses of hardship that come and people still don't repent? As a matter of fact, they turn and curse God, as it says a few chapters later, chapter 16. This is not the trumpets. This is the actual bowls of wrath that are being poured out. And notice what it says, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire and they were scorched by the fierce heat and they, were, they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and, in, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish, but... They were able with their tongues to still curse God of heaven for their pain and their sores. and They did not repent of their deeds. Notice this, like even the pouring out of the bowls of wrath, there still seems that there's an opportunity before this is final. You could still hear and return. You could still hear and return. I like this quote from C.S. Lewis, pain the difficulty, times of hardship, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is, is megaphone to rouse a deaf world. In Amos chapter 4, God went from whispering to shouting, I made you hungry, I didn't give you rain. And Israel, you failed to return to me. Friends, let's hear and return. As we look around and see catastrophe and disaster all around, may we know for certain, we, 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 know, we know that difficult times are ahead. And this is an opportunity to hear and to return. And for us to remind all of those around us, this is a chance to hear and to return. When you see tumults, oppression, theft. Janet was just telling me about this too, a video where people just walking out. Um, or Kim was, your store was robbed this week, right? They just back the car up, run in, grab stuff. There's videos all along, people just taking stuff. It's hard to imagine. Is Northern Kingdom of Israel didn't have to imagine that. That was happening. So hear and return. 
And it's helpful at this point to remind us what's the point of the prophets. There, there really is three points, three key parts to a prophet's message. One was judgment for sin, yet mercy for sinners and restoration for God's people. And this all climaxes at the cross of Jesus Christ. God has at the cross given judgment for sin. And we see the seriousness of it. And at the cross, we have mercy for sinners who hear this word and return to him. God's God's judgment, as difficult as it is for us to really fathom in this book of Amos, God's judgment is evangelistic in these times. So hear and repent and return so that we can be God's restored people. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the powerful word it is from this prophet that you had called specifically to this task. And God, we, uh, we ask that you would help us to, to heed the warning here and to remember that we turn to Christ and cling to him. That in the midst of hardship and affliction, that, that as we look all around and see such disaster and tumults and oppression and theft, and that we, we would know that these are just calls from you to a world to hear and return. Help us in our hearts to do that and help us to be messengers of that to those around us. And it's in Christ's name we pray and all God's people said.